Chapter Two of Hearts of Controversy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Hearts of Controversy by Alice Maynell. Dickens as a Man of Letters. It was said for many years, until the reversal that now befalls the sayings of many years had happened to this also, that Thackeray was the unkind satirist, and Dickens the kind humorist. The truth seems to be that Dickens imagined more evil people than did Thackeray, but that he had an eager faith in the good ones. Nothing places him so entirely out of date as his trust in human sanctity, his love of it, his hope for it, his leap at it. He saw it in a woman's face first met, and drew it to himself in a man's hand first grasped. He looked keenly for it. And if he associated minor degrees of goodness with any kind of folly or mental ineptitude, he did not so relate sanctity, though he gave it for companion ignorance, and joined the two in Joe Gargery most tenderly. We might paraphrase, in regard to these two great authors, Dr. Johnson's famous sentence, Marriage has many pains, but celibacy has no joys. Dickens has many scoundrels, but Thackeray has no saints. Helen Pendennis is not holy, for she is unjust and cruel. Amelia is not holy, for she is an egoist in love. Lady Castlewood is not holy, for she too is cruel. And even Lady Jane is not holy, for she is jealous. Nor is Colonel Newcombe holy, for he is haughty. Nor Dobbin, for he turns with a taunt upon a plain sister. Nor Esmond, for he squanders his best years in love for a material beauty. And these are the best of his good people and readers have been taught to praise the work of him who makes none perfect. One does not meet perfect people in trains or at dinner, and this seemed good cause that the novelist should be praised for his moderation. It seemed to imitate the usual measure and moderation of nature. But Charles Dickens closed with a divine purpose divinely different. He consented to the counsels of perfection, and thus he made Joe Gargery, not a man one might easily find in a forge, and Esther Summerson, not a girl one may easily meet at a dance, and Little Dorrit, who does not come to do a day's sewing. Not that the man and the woman are inconceivable, but that they are unfortunately improbable. They are creatures created through a creating mind that worked its six days for the love of good, and never rested until the seventh, the final Sabbath. But granting that they are the counterpart, the heavenly side of caricature, this is not to condemn them. Since when has caricature ceased to be an art good for man, an honest game between him and nature? It is a tenable opinion that frank caricature is a better incident of art than the mere exaggeration which is the more modern practice. The words mean the same thing in their origin, an overloading. But as we now generally delimit the words, they differ. Caricature, when it has the grotesque inspiration, makes for laughter, and when it has the celestial, makes for admiration. In either case, there is a good understanding between the author and the reader, or between the draftsman and the spectator. We need not, for example, suppose that Ibsen sat in a room surrounded by a repeating pattern of his hair and whiskers on the wallpaper, but it makes us most exceedingly mirthful and joyous to see him thus seated in Mr. Max Beerbohm's drawing. And perhaps no girl ever went through life without harboring a thought of self, but it is very good for us all to know that such a girl was thought of by Dickens, that he loved his thought, and that she is ultimately to be traced through Dickens to God. 
but exaggeration establishes no good understanding between the reader and the author it is a solemn appeal to our credulity and we are right to resent it it is the violence of a weakling hand the worst manner of violence exaggeration is conspicuous in the newer poetry and is so far therefore successful conspicuousness being its aim but it was also the vice of swinburne and was the bad example he set to the generation that thought his tunings to be the finest music for instance in an early poem he intends to tell us how a man who loved a woman welcomed the sentence that condemned him to drown with her bound his impassioned breast against hers abhorring he might have convinced us of that welcome by one phrase of the profound exactitude of genius but he makes his man cry out for the greatest bliss and the greatest imaginable glory to be bestowed upon the judge who pronounces the sentence and this is merely exaggeration one takes pleasure in rebuking the false ecstasy by a word thus prim and prosaic the poet intended to impose upon us and he fails we withdraw our attention as dr johnson did when the conversation became foolish in truth we do more for we resent exaggeration if we care for our english language for exaggeration writes relaxed and not elastic words and verses and it is possible that the language suffers something at least temporarily during the life of a couple of generations let us say from the loss of elasticity and rebound brought about by such strain moreover exaggeration has always to outdo itself progressively there should have been a dirtles to tell this swinburne that the habit of exaggerating like that of boasting grows upon you it may be added that later poetry shows us an instance of exaggeration in the work of that major poet mr lascelles abercrombie his violence and vehemence his extremity are generally signs not of weakness but of power and yet once he reaches a breaking point that power should never know this is where his judith holds herself to be so smirched and degraded by the proffer of a reverent love she being devoted to one only a dead man who had her heart that thenceforth no bar is left to her entire self-sacrifice to the loathed enemy holofernes to this too the prim rebuke is the just one a word for the mouth of governesses my dear you exaggerate it may be briefly said that exaggeration takes for granted some degree of imbecility in the reader whereas caricature takes for granted a high degree of intelligence. Dickens appeals to our intelligence in all his caricature, whether heavenly, as in Joe Gargery, or impish, as in Mrs. Micawber. The word caricature that is used a thousand times to reproach him is the word that does him singular honor. If I may define my own devotion to Dickens, it may be stated as chiefly, though not wholly, admiration of his humor, his dramatic tragedy, and his watchfulness over inanimate things and landscape passages of his books that are ranged otherwise than under those characters often leave me out of the range of their appeal or else definitely offend me and this is not for the customary reason that dickens could not draw a gentleman that dickens could not draw a lady it matters little whether he could or not but as a fact he did draw a gentleman and drew him excellently well in cousin phoenix as mr chesterton has decided the question of the lady we may waive if it is difficult to prove a negative it is difficult also to present one and to the making or producing or liberating or detaching or exalting of the character of a lady there enter many negatives and dickens was an obvious and a positive man esther summerson is a lady but she is so much besides that her ladyhood does not detach itself from her sainthood and her angelhood 
so as to be conspicuous if indeed conspicuousness may be properly predicated of the quality of a lady it is a conventional saying that sainthood and angelhood include the quality of a lady but that saying is not true a lady has a great number of negatives all her own and also some things positive that are not at all included in goodness however this may be and it is not important dickens the genial dickens makes savage sport of women such a company of envious dames and damsels cannot be found among the persons of the satirist thackeray kate nickleby's beauty brings upon her at first sight the enmity of her workshop companions in the innocent pages of pickwick the aunt is jealous of the niece and the niece retorts by wounding the vanity of the aunt as keenly as she may and so forth through early books and late he takes for granted that the women old and young who are not his heroines wage this war within the sex being disappointed by defective nature and fortune dickens is master of wit humor and derision and it must be confessed that his derision is abundant and is cast upon an artificially exposed and helpless people that is he a man derides the women who miss what a man declared to be their whole existence the advice which m rodin received in his youth from constant learn to see the other side never look at forms only in extent learn to see them always in relief is the contrary of the counsel proper for a reader of dickens that counsel should be do not insist upon seeing the immortal figures of comedy in the round you are to be satisfied with their face value the face of two dimensions it is not necessary that you should seize mr pecksniff from beyond and grasp the whole man and his destinies the hypocrite is a figure dreadful and tragic a shape of horror and mr pecksniff is a hypocrite and a bright image of heart-easing comedy for comic fiction cannot exist without some such paradox without it where would our laugh be in response to the generous genius which gives us mr pecksniff's parenthesis to the mention of sirens pagan i regret to say and the scene in which mr pecksniff after a stormy domestic scene within goes as it were accidentally to the door to admit the rich kinsman he wishes to propitiate then mr pecksniff gently warbling a rustic stave put on his garden hat seized a spade and opened the street door as if he thought he had from his vineyard heard a modest rap but was not quite certain the visitor had thundered at the door while outcries of family strife had been rising in the home it is an ancient pursuit gardening primitive my dear sir for if i am not mistaken adam was the first of the calling my eve i grieve to say is no more sir but and here he pointed to his spade and shook his head as if he were not cheerful without an effort but i do a little bit of adam still he had by this time got them into the best parlor where the portrait by spiller and the bust by spoker were and again mr pecksniff hospitable at the supper table this he said in allusion to the party not the wine is a mingling that repays one for much disappointment and vexation let us be merry here he took a captain's biscuit it is a poor heart that never rejoices and our hearts are not poor no with such stimulants to merriment did he beguile the time and do the honors of the table moreover it is a mournful thing and an inexplicable that a man should be as mad as mr dick none the less it is a happy thing for any reader to watch mr dick while david explains his difficulty to traddles mr dick was to be employed in copying but king charles i could not be kept out of the manuscripts mr dick in the meantime looked very deferentially and seriously at traddles and sucking his thumb 
and the amours of the gentlemen in gaiters who threw the vegetable marrows over the garden wall, Mr. F.'s aunt again, an Augustus model, our own model, whom a great French critic most justly and accurately brooded over. Augustus, the gloomy maniac, says Taine, makes us shudder. A good medical diagnosis. Long live the logical French intellect. Truly, humor talks in his own language, nay, his own dialect, whereas passion and pity speak the universal tongue. It is strange, it seems to me deplorable, that Dickens himself was not content to leave his wonderful hypocrite, one who should stand imperishable in comedy, in the two dimensions of his own admirable art. After he had enjoyed his own Pecksniff, tasting him with the strenuous tongue of Keats' voluptuary bursting Joy's grapes against his palate fine, Dickens most unfairly gives himself the other and incompatible joy of grasping his Pecksniff in the third dimension, seizes him in the round, horsewhips him out of all keeping, and finally kicks him out of a splendid art of fiction into a sorry art of poetical justice, a Pecksniff not only defeated but undone. And yet, Dickens' retribution upon sinners is a less fault than his reforming them. It is truly an act denoting excessive simplicity of mind in him. He never veritably allows his responsibility as a man to lapse. Men ought to be good, or else to become good, and he does violence to his own excellent art, and yields it up to his sense of morality. Ah, can we measure by years the time between that day and this? Is the fastidious, the impartial, the non-moral novelist only the grandchild, and not the remote posterity of Dickens, who would not leave Scrooge to his egoism, or Gradgrind to his facts, or Mercy Pecksniff to her absurdity, or Dombey to his pride, nay, who makes Micawber finally to prosper. Truly, the most unpardonable thing Dickens did in those deplorable last chapters of his was the prosperity of Mr. Micawber. Of a son, in difficulties, the perfect Micawber nature is respected as to his origin and then perverted as to his end. It is a pity that Mr. Peggotty ever came back to England with such tidings, and our last glimpse of the emigrants had been made joyous by the sight of the young Micawbers on the eve of emigration. Every child had its own wooden spoon attached to its body by a strong line, in preparation for colonial life. And then Dickens must needs go behind the gay scenes, and tell us that the long and untiring delight of the book was over. Mr. Micawber in the colonies was never again to make punch with lemons in a crisis of his fortunes and resume his peeling with a desperate air, nor to observe the expression of his friends' faces during Mrs. Micawber's masterly exposition of the financial situation or of the possibilities of the coal trade, nor to eat walnuts out of a paper bag what time the die was cast and all was over. Alas, nothing was over until Mr. Micawber's pecuniary liabilities were over and the perfect comedy turned into dullness, the joyous impossibility of a figure of immortal fun into cold improbability. There are several such late or last chapters that one would gladly cut away. That of Mercy Pecksniff's pathos, for example. That of Mr. Dombey's installation in his daughter's home. That which undeceives us as to Mr. Boffin's antic disposition. But how true and how whole a heart it was that urged these unlucky conclusions. How shall we venture to complain? The hand that made its pecksniff in pure wit, has it not the right to belabor him in earnest, albeit a kind of earnest that disappoints us? And Mr. Dombey is Dickens' own Dombey, and he must do what he will with that finely wrought figure of pride. But there is a little irony in the fact that Dickens leaves more than one villain to his orderly fate for whom we care little either way. 
it is nothing to us whom carker never convinced that the train should catch him nor that the man with the moustache and the nose who did but weary us should be crushed by the falling house here the end holds good in art but the art was not good from the first but then again neither does bill sykes experience a change of heart nor jonas chuzzlewit and the end of each is most excellently told george meredith said that the most difficult thing to write in fiction was dialogue but there is surely one thing at least as difficult a thing so rarely well done that a mere reader might think it to be more difficult than dialogue and that is the telling what happened something of the fatal languor and preoccupation that persists beneath all the violence of our stage our national undramatic character is perceptible in the narrative of our literature the things the usual modern author says are proportionately more energetically produced than those he tells but dickens being simple and dramatic and capable of one thing at a time and that thing whole tells us what happened with a perfect speed which has neither hurry nor delays those who saw him act found him a fine actor and this we might know by reading the murder in oliver twist the murder in martin chuzzlewit the coming of the train upon carker the long moment of recognition when pip sees his guest the convict reveal himself in his chambers at night the swift spirit the hammering blow of his narrative drive the great storm in david copperfield through the poorest part of the book steerforth's story there is surely no greater gale to be read of than this from the very first words don't you think that i said to the coachman a very remarkable sky to the end of a magnificent chapter flying clouds tossed up into the most remarkable heaps suggesting greater heights in the clouds than there were depths below them there had been a wind all day and it was rising then with an extraordinary great sound long before we saw the sea its spray was on our lips the water was out over the flat country and every sheet and puddle lashed its banks and had its stress of little breakers when we came within sight of the sea the waves on the horizon caught at intervals above the boiling abyss were like glimpses of another shore with towers and buildings the people came to their doors all aslant and with streaming hair David dreams of a cannonade when at last he fell off a tower and down a precipice into the depths of sleep. In the morning, the wind might have lulled a little, though not more sensibly than if the cannonading I had dreamed of had been diminished by the silencing of half a dozen guns out of hundreds. It went from me with a shock, like a ball from a rifle, says David in another place, after the visit of a delirious impulse here is the volley of departure the shock of passion vanishing more perceptibly than it came the tragedy in david copperfield combines dickens dramatic tragedy of narrative with his wonderful sense of sea and land but here are landscapes in quietness there has been rain this afternoon and a wintry shudder goes among the little pools in the cracked uneven flagstones some of the leaves in a timid rush seek sanctuary within the low-arched cathedral door but two men coming out resist them and cast them out with their feet the autumn leaves fall thick but never fast for they come circling down with a dead lightness again now the woods settle into great masses as if they were one profound tree and yet again i held my mother in my embrace and she held me in hers and among the still woods in the silence of the summer day there seemed to be nothing but our two troubled minds that was not at peace yet with a thousand great felicities of diction dickens had no body of style 
dickens having the single and simple heart of a moralist had also the simple eyes of a free intelligence and the light heart he gave his senses their way and well did they serve him thus his eyes and no more modern man in anxious search of impressions was ever so simple and so masterly mr voles gauntly stalked to the fire and warmed his funereal gloves i thank you said mr voles putting out his long black sleeve to check the ringing of the bell not any mr and mrs tope are daintily sticking sprigs of holly into the carvings and sconces of the cathedral stalls as if they were sticking them into the buttonholes of the dean and chapter the two young eurasians brother and sister had a certain air upon them of hunter and huntress yet withal a certain air of being the objects of the chase rather than the followers this phrase lacks elegance and dickens is not often inelegant as those who do not read him may be surprised to learn but the impression is admirable so is that which follows an indefinable kind of pause coming and going on their whole expression both of face and form here is pure mere impression again miss murderstone who was busy at her writing desk gave me her cold fingernails lady tippin's hand is rich in knuckles and here is vision with great dignity all beyond his figure was a vast dark curtain in solemn movement towards one quarter of the heavens with that singleness of sight and his whole body was full of the light of it he had also the single hearing the scene is in the court of chancery on a london november day leaving this address ringing in the rafters of the roof the very little council drops and the fog knows him no more mr voles emerged into the silence he could scarcely be said to have broken so stifled was his tone within the grill gate of the chancel up the steps surmounted loomingly by the fast darkening organ white robes could be dimly seen and one feeble voice rising and falling in a cracked monotonous mutter could at intervals be faintly heard until the organ and the choir burst forth and drowned it in a sea of music then the sea fell and the dying voice made another feeble effort and then the sea rose high and beat its life out and lashed the roof and surged among the arches and pierced the heights of the great tower and then the sea was dry and all was still and this is how a listener overheard men talking in the cathedral hollows the word confidence shattered by the echoes but still capable of being pieced together is uttered wit humor derision to each of these words we assign by custom a part in the comedy of literature and again those who do not read dickens perhaps even those who read him a little may acclaim him as a humorist and not know him as a wit but that writer is a wit whatever his humor who tells us of a member of the tight barnacle family who had held a sinecure office against all protest that he died with his drawn salary in his hand but let it be granted that dickens the humorist is foremost and most precious for we might well spare the phrase of wit just quoted rather than the one describing traddles whose hair stood up as one who looked as though he had seen a cheerful ghost or rather than this he was so wooden a man that he seemed to have taken his wooden leg naturally and rather suggested to the fanciful observer that he might be expected if his development received no untimely check to be completely set up with a pair of wooden legs in about six months or rather than the incident of the butcher and the beefsteak he gently presses it in a cabbage leaf into tom pinch's pocket for meat he said with some emotion must be humoured not drove a generation between his own and the present thought dickens to be vulgar if the cause of that judgment was that he wrote about people in shops 
the cause is discredited now that shops are the scenes of the novelist's research high life and most wretched life have now given place to the little shop in its parlor during a year or two but dr brown the author of rab and his friends thought that dickens committed vulgarities in his diction a good man was robin is right enough but he was a good man was robin is not so well and we must own that it is dickensian but assuredly dickens writes such phrases as it were dramatically playing the cockney i know of but two words that dickens habitually misuses and charles lamb misuses one of them precisely in dickens manner it is not worth while to quote them but for these his english is admirable he chooses what is good and knows what is not a little representative collection of the bad or foolish english of his day might be made by gathering up what dickens forbore and what he derided for instance mr micawber's portly phrase gratifying emotions of no common description and littimer's report that the young woman was partial to the sea this was the polite language of that time as we conclude when we find it to be the language that charlotte bronte shook off but before she shook it off she used it dickens too had something to throw off in his earlier books there is an inflation rounded words fill the inappropriate mouth of bill sykes himself but he discarded them with a splendid laugh they are charged upon mr micawber in his own character as author see him as he sits by to hear captain hopkins read the petition in the debtor's prison from his most gracious majesty's unfortunate subjects mr micawber listened we read with a little of an author's vanity contemplating not severely the spikes upon the opposite wall it should be remembered that when dickens shook himself free of everything that hampered his genius he was not so much beloved or so much applauded as when he gave to his cordial readers matter for facile sentiment and for humor of the second order his public were eager to be moved and to laugh and he gave them little nell and sam weller he loved to please them and it is evident that he pleased himself also mr micawber mr pecksniff mrs nickleby mrs chick mrs pipchin mr augustus model mrs jellyby mrs plornish are not so famous as sam weller and little nell nor as traddles whose hair looked as though he had seen a cheerful ghost we are told of the delight of the japanese man in a chance finding of something strange shaped in a symmetry that has an accidental felicity an interest if he finds such a grace or disproportion whatever the interest may be in a stone or a twig that has caught his ambiguous eye at the roadside he carries it to his home to place it in its irregularly happy place dickens seems to have had a like joy in things misshapen or strangely shapen uncommon or grotesque he saddled even his heroes those heroes are perhaps his worst work young men at once conventional and improbable with whimsically ugly names while his invented names are whimsically perfect that of voles for the predatory silent man in black that of tope for the cathedral verger a suggestion of dark and vague flight in voles something of old floors something respectably furtive and musty in tope in dickens the love of lurking unusual things human and inanimate he wrote of his discoveries delightedly in his letters was hypertrophied and it has its part in the simplest and the most fantastic of his humours especially those that are due to his childlike eyesight let us read for example of the rooks that seem to attend upon dr strong late of canterbury in his highgate garden as if they had been written to about him by the canterbury rooks and were observing him closely in consequence and of master micawber who had a remarkable head voice 
on looking at master micawber again i saw that he had a certain expression of face as if his voice were behind his eyebrows and of joe in his sunday clothes a scarecrow in good circumstances and of the cook's cousin in the lifeguards with such long legs that he looked like the afternoon shadow of somebody else and of mrs markleham who stared more like a figurehead intended for a ship to be called the astonishment than anything else i can think of but there is no reader who has not a thousand such exhilarating little sights in his memory of these pages from the gently grotesque to the fantastic run dickens enchanted eyes and in quilp and mrs moucher he takes his joy in the extreme of deformity and a spontaneous combustion was an accident much to his mind dickens wrote for a world that either was exceedingly excitable and sentimental or had the convention or tradition of great sentimental excitability all his people suddenly surprised lose their presence of mind even when the surprise is not extraordinary their actions are wild when tom pinch calls upon john westlock in london after no very long separation john welcoming him at breakfast puts the rolls into his boots and so forth and this kind of distraction comes upon men and women everywhere in his books distractions of laughter as well all this seems artificial to-day whereas dickens in his best moments was the simplest as he is the most vigilant of men but his public was as present to him as an actor's audience is to the actor and i cannot think that this immediate response was good for his art assuredly he is not solitary we should not wish him to be solitary as a poet is but we may wish that now and again even while standing applauded and acclaimed he had appraised the applause more coolly and more justly and within his inner mind those critics who find what they call vulgarisms think they may safely go on to accuse dickens of bad grammar the truth is that his grammar is not only good but strong it is far better in construction than thackeray's the ease of whose phrase sometimes exceeds and is slack lately during the recent centenary time a writer averred that dickens might not always be parsed but that we loved him for his etc etc dickens page is to be parsed as strictly as any man's it is apart from the matter of grammar a wonderful thing that he with his little education should have so excellent a diction in a letter that records his reluctance to work during a holiday the word wave seems to me perfect imaginary butchers and bakers wave me to my desk in his exquisite use of the word establishment in the following phrase we find his own perfect sense of the use of words in his own day but in the second quotation given there is a most beautiful sign of education under the weight of my wicked secret the little boy pip had succored his convict with his brother-in-law's provisions i pondered whether the church would be powerful enough to shield me if i divulged to that establishment and this is the phrase that may remind us of the eighteenth-century writers of prose and among those writers of none so readily is of bolingbroke it occurs in that passage of esther's life in which having lost her beauty she resolves to forego a love unavowed there was nothing to be undone no chain for him to drag or for me to break if dickens had had the education which he had not his english could not have been better but if he had had the usage du monde which as a young man he had not there would have been a difference he would not for instance have given us the preposterous scenes in nicholas nickleby in which parts are played by lord frederick verisoft sir mulberry hawk and their friends the scene of the hero's luncheon at a restaurant and the dreadful description of the mirrors and other splendors would not have been written it is a very little thing to forgive to him whom we have to thank for well not perhaps for the houseful of friends 
for the gift of whom a stranger often quoted once blessed him in the street we may not wish for mr feeder or major bagstock or mrs chick or mrs pipchin or mr augustus model or mr f's aunt or mr wopsle or mr pumblechook as an inmate of our homes lack of knowledge of the polite world is i say a very little thing to forgive to him whom we thank most chiefly for showing us these interesting people just named as inmates of the comedy homes that are not ours we thank him because they are comedy homes and could not be ours or any man's that is we thank him for his admirable art end of chapter two recording by colleen mcmahon